Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're continuing our series of broadcasts being recorded in Nome, Alaska. I'm excited today to be in the Norton Sound Medical Center. Across from me, Dr. Matt Hirschfeld. Matt, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Matt, although you're not Native, you've got some deep roots in Indian country. Tell us a little bit about your background. I'm sure. So I moved up here 10 years ago when I finished my pediatric residency. And so I've been working at the Alaska Native Medical Center for almost 10 years as a pediatric hospitalist. And I also run the maternal child health program. I'm the medical director for that. Um, I first probably became interested in um, Native American health uh, because my dad was in the Indian Health Service back in the 70s, and I was born on the uh, Navajo Reservation in Shiprock. Okay, very good. So you've got these uh, deep roots. You have this vision of making a difference in Indian country, and you're doing something very exciting. Uh, I don't do a lot of work with Alaskan Natives, but when I heard about your work, I was saying, boy, I'd love when I'm in Nome to get a chance to have you on the show You've been doing some very exciting research about a significant cause of mortality in Alaskan Native infants and uh, young children. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Sure. In 2003, we changed the way that we do the newborn metabolic screen in Alaska. And a lot of places across the country changed the way they do their screen. We used to screen for individual diseases. So we had seven diseases that we're screening for uh, one by one. And in 2003, we changed the way we do the screen. So we all of a sudden, we were doing kind of a blanket screen for about 50 different diseases. Mm -hmm. And one of the just happened to be on the newborn screening panel diseases was something called CPT1A. Uh, deficiency, which is carnitine palmitoyl transferase type 1A. And what that does is it's the rate-limiting enzyme that allows you to convert to using fats for energy from the usual glucose. So in plain English, for our listeners, if I'm short on sugar or glucose, then my body is going to want to burn fat. That's totally correct. And this particular enzyme helps me to burn fat? Yes, if you don't have this enzyme, you can't make that change from, from sugar to fats. Okay. And so what where people get in trouble if they don't have this enzyme is if you fast for a long period of time, mm-hmm. you burn through the glucose, the sugar in your blood, and your liver stores sugar as well. Mm-hmm. If you burn through both of those uh, sugar areas, um, you have to change to fats for energy. Mm-hmm. People who don't have this enzyme are not able to do that. Wow. So... The real problem becomes then in a child or especially an infant who maybe is ill and hasn't been able to to take nourishment or breastfeed or whatever carbohydrate source that they've been getting. Right. That's that's exactly right. And so we we see this, we think we're going to be seeing this much more commonly in people who don't have a lot of reserves. So little babies mm-hmm. or, as it turns out, very old people. Okay. Um, so I've talked to my internal medicine colleagues and people who have, who have this issue um, when they get much older and you know, they get sick and they can't eat for a long period of time. Those people are also having troubles because of this this uh, enzyme problem. So what do the troubles look like? If we've got someone who's got native Alaskan roots, maybe they were born or their children were born at a time 
when they weren't screening for this, right. what would you see? So most of the time in older kids, you don't see very much um, because they have enough reserves that they're able to tolerate a few hours of fasting without getting into trouble. Where we're seeing it is in babies, especially babies less than one year old. Um, if they get sick and lots of one-year-old babies get sick mm -hmm. with a respiratory illness or diarrhea, vomiting, fevers, um, we think that they speed up their metabolism and okay. they burn through their sugar faster than babies who aren't sick. Mm -hmm. And then they need to change to using fats for energies and these babies aren't able to do that very well. And so what happens is they drop their blood sugar and they become something called hypoglycemic or mm -hmm. low blood sugar. And they can get real shaky. They get jittery. If it goes on long enough, they get lethargic and it's hard to wake them up. And if it goes on uh, too much longer than that, they actually will have seizures. Really? From low blood sugar? From low blood sugar. Wow. So do we think that kids' lives have been lost because of this enzyme problem? So we've actually looked at, we have a paper in, in process right now looking at um, how uh, is this related to anything else other than seizures. Mm -hmm. And we have some preliminary data based on small numbers of kids that suggest that if you have this issue, um, you're, more, you're more at risk of dying during the first year of life. Wow. So increased infant mortality. Now, I know one of the big questions, at least I've heard people here in Nome talking about it. I was speaking with one health professional. He said one of the questions has been, is it linked to SIDS? Do we know anything about that? We do, and we looked at data. Our, our data suggests that it's not linked to SIDS. Okay. We think that it's linked to all of the kids that had increased, in, increased risk for infant mortality that we saw all had a uh, infectious disease issue happening at the same time that they died. Okay. Most commonly it was pneumonia because that's the most common infectious disease, but we also saw it with sepsis and meningitis. Okay. Um, so these kids seem to get sick. They get sicker when they have this CPT1 um, issue, and, and these are the kids that are at risk for dying. It's not the kids that are healthy who just go to sleep and you know don't wake up. Those, those are the SIDS kids. Mm -hmm. So basically we've got this, uh, this issue, and, and here in Nome, from some of the data I've seen, this is uh, not some rare condition. I mean, it's it's the majority that actually have the full blown genetic problem. That's the that's correct. And actually, we so one of the things when we first started screening for this in 2003, we called it CPT1 deficiency. Mm -hmm. But because it's so common in Arctic populations, we actually have changed the name from deficiency to Arctic variant. Okay. This is a very specific mutation in the CPT1 gene. It's found in um, Canadian Inuit people. Greenland Inuit people. It's found in the Siberian uh, population, and it's also found all across the coast in Alaska. So really, all Arctic people who live on the coast have this same mutation. So we've changed the name to Arctic variant because really it's the normal gene for these people. Now, that is so interesting. I, one of the questions it begs is what advantage does this have? It seems if all these people had it, there must be some benefit to this genetic mutation. That's exactly right. And a paper just came out from a group of geneticists from Cambridge looking at the Siberian population. Mm -hmm. And they had some fancy genetic uh, methods okay. to, to show that this was one of the most selected four genes that they've ever seen. Huh. It's not just a random mutation that happened in this population. It's something that was selected for throughout time. Uh -huh. And it's the reason it's so prevalent in this population is because it was probably beneficial. Now, let's move to someone who is an indigenous person living traditionally. They're eating lots of fatty fish and other high-fat sources. How does a gene 
that interferes with fat metabolism? How does that help them? Sure. So we don't know the answer to that. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, there's a metabolic geneticist from Oregon Health Sciences who runs our newborn screening program up here. So he and I are collaborating around uh, trying to figure that exact question out. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at doing a big research project up here in Alaska um, to try and see um, well, we think that the traditional diet, the diet you were just mentioning, high fat, high protein, very little carbohydrates, mm -hmm. is protective when this gene is present. Mm. And now that people have switched to a much more Western diet in these areas of the world, it's not working quite as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's some, we have some preliminary evidence that the particular type of fats in sea mammals and fish actually activate this gene a little bit. So maybe it's mm. not as deficient as we think it is. And so we think that that for whatever reason, the traditional diet was much better with this gene in, gene in place than, uh, than the Western diet that we currently have. Now, one of the other interesting things about this whole discussion, and we're you know trying to keep it on the practical level because there are a lot of Alaskan natives out there. When we speak about genetics, there's probably a number of people listening right now. If they're an Alaskan native, do we know across the board or if they have roots in a seaboard Alaskan community, what percentage at least are carriers or have this, uh, you know, full-blown condition? Sure. So the, uh, the, the population that has this in Alaska are the Inupiaq people and the Yupik people. Okay. It's not found in the Athabascans. It's not found in the Southeast tribes. It's really Western and Northern Alaska on the coast mm -hmm. are the places that have it. Um, we, we think that depending on which village you're from and how much intermixing of the races over time has mm -hmm. happened, if you're in a village where it was all, if there's been essentially no intermixing of races, 100% of the people there have it. 100%? Yep. Now, maybe we need a genetic primer, too, because I know you and I are thinking genetics in the back of our minds, but uh, our listeners may not quite know how this works because you get a, a set of genes from your mom and a set of genes from your dad. And you only see this full-blown condition if you're what we call in medical circles a homozygote, right? Right. And we call it autosomal recessive. And so you have to get a copy of this particular form, variant of the gene, the Arctic variant, from your mom and your dad to have the, um, to have the Arctic variant phenotype. So in other words, if my dad was native Alaskan from the coast and my mom was Athabascan, then... She doesn't have the gene. We're pretty confident of that. Right. And so I'm not going to have this condition because you've got to get two copies of the gene from both parents. That's correct. You'd, you'd be what we call heterozygote for the, for the Arctic variant. So you'd have one of the more common uh, uh, versions of it, and then you'd have one copy of the Arctic variant. And as far as we know, you, that, you're just like anyone else from a, a Western population as far as how you handle fat. We've never seen a, a phenotype. Um, we've never seen a phenotype with the heterozygote. Okay. So when we're talking 100% in a certain village, let's say, having this condition, that means everybody's got the gene, so any kids they have are going to have the condition. That's correct. And they've had it for thousands of years. But once someone marries someone who doesn't have Native American, indigenous, Arctic, you know, Alaskan Native blood or Siberian uh, Native blood, we're not going to see in their offspring this condition. That's correct. Okay. So the people that have been missed 
are people that weren't screened before 2003 or Alaskan natives that are living outside of Alaska, presumably. Sure. And, and what's also interesting is our newborn screen is really good at picking up people who have uh, no enzyme activity. And the interesting thing about this Arctic variant um, uh, uh, gene is that the enzyme actually works about 10 to 20% as well as the Western okay. version. And so what that does is it still gives us uh, increased risk for infant mortality, and you still see the hypoglycemia. But what it does is it doesn't allow us to pick it up very well on the newborn screen. So our uh, newborn screen is not particularly accurate for this version of CPT1. I see. So we only pick up about 20% of the kids with this with our newborn screen. So we're changing the way we do our newborn screen probably in July or August so that we're picking up 100% of these patients. Wow. So for those of you tuning in today, pre-recorded show – Although this should be airing before June or uh, July of 2015, we're recording at the end of February in 2015, just to give you a little bit of timeline. And uh, I didn't realize that as many as one and only one in four, one in five are being picked up on the current screening. Right. Yep. Wow. And that's that's just because this this is a very different version of the gene than we see. Uh, before we started screening in 2003, there were about 40 known cases of CPT1 deficiency in the world, mm -hmm. and all those were just case reports. Oh, okay. um, in the first year that we screened, we doubled the world's population. Mm. And so, but the, our particular version of the gene just doesn't work well with our newborn screen because it is a little bit active. The gene works a little bit, okay. and that's just enough to to change the way our newborn screen picks things up, and we just don't pick up everybody with that. Wow. So basically, this genetic difference or variant, this CPT1A, uh, actually doesn't shut down the ability to utilize fat. There still is this residual, maybe, like you said, 18 20% right. uh, fat metabolic capacity that they have. But the other thing that's interesting to me, as you mentioned, these marine fats, presumably the omega-3 fats, right can actually perhaps ramp up the enzyme activity? It, it increases what we call transcription, which means that more of the protein is made, more of the enzyme is made. And so it may not be working quite as well, mm -hmm. but if you're on a traditional diet, you have so much more of the enzyme around that you probably aren't very deficient. Wow, so that is interesting. And so that's part of the research project I was talking about is to try and figure out if people on a traditional diet versus a Western diet have a, have a different way to, that they handle fats. Well, we're going to step away in just a moment, but one of the things we want to ask Dr. Hirschfeld about is possibly does this variant have some benefits when it comes to a, a leading risk factor throughout the world, and that is obesity. We're going to look at that issue and other things, other uh, pediatric health issues from the perspective of a uh, pediatric uh, expert in Nome, Alaska. Dr. Matt Hirschfeld will stay by for the uh, next segment. I'll be with you. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be right back after this. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this.
My name is Florence AQ. For lunch today, I had grilled chicken and squash. I am Zuni Indian, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. My name is Dee Dakota Denesosi. I turned the TV off and took my nieces and nephews for a walk. We saw two jackrabbits, an eagle, and zero cartoons. I'm from the Dine Nation, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and make healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. My name is Barbara Akisapuk Curtis. I'm losing weight and being more active. I am Alaskan Inupap Eskimo, and I have the power to prevent diabetes. For more information on how to prevent diabetes, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is the story of Daniel, who was born two months early. He weighed one pound, seven ounces. His lungs weren't ready. His heart wasn't ready. His brain wasn't ready. At the hospital, the nurses said Daniel was a fighter, and they would do all they could to help him. The doctor said even with the best care, Daniel may never walk. He may never see. He may never learn. Daniel's parents spent night after night at the hospital, watching his every breath, holding his tiny hands, and looking for signs that he was growing stronger. At home, his parents looked around Daniel's empty nursery, at the quiet toys and the still rocker, and they hoped that one day they could sit in that rocking chair and tell this story to their very healthy son. Daniel's is just one of the more than 500,000 stories of babies born prematurely last year, but there's hope for a happy ending. The March of Dimes is funding the research and programs to stop premature birth. You can help bring more babies home healthy. Learn how at marchofdimes.com. Working together for stronger, healthier babies. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose in the Norton Sound Medical Center in Nome, Alaska. I'm speaking with Dr. Matt Hirschfeld. Dr. Hirschfeld, not only a medical doctor and pediatrician, but he's also got a second doctorate. What is your PhD in? Uh, it's biochemistry is probably the best way to put it. Biochemistry, okay. And you're using that biochemistry in the pediatric arena. This is really, you know, you're doing some amazing stuff. And I'm saying that as a physician. I hope uh, my listeners who don't have a medical background are as excited about this show as I am. We've been speaking about this CPT-1 Arctic variant that affects the ability of many Native Alaskans who have roots on the coast as far as their ability to utilize fat as an energy source. One of the questions that I began to broach just before the break was could this have an impact on what's now become an epidemic, not just in Indian country, but across uh, every demographic, and that is obesity. Do we have any insights into that? We don't. Um, this research project that I keep talking about is is a, is a long-term study. So we're going to pick up kids when they're first born on the newborn screen, and we're going to follow them for as long as the money holds out. Okay. So that could be you know, 20 years is what we're really shooting for. And so we want to see if kids who have the Arctic variant are protected from obesity or if it's more common in these kids. Um, how it all relates to obesity is not well known at this point. Wow. I, I mean, the, the thing that 
intuitively you'd say, well, wow, if they can't use the calories and fat and they're eating a high-fat diet, maybe that's going to help keep their caloric intake more moderated, especially in times of excess. But we really don't know that. It's just totally speculation at this point, huh? That's true. Do you notice anything in the, in the kids that you see who have this variant? Do they tend, I mean, do you see obese kids with this problem? Well, so so like I said, the newborn screen is not particularly good at picking this up. Mm-hmm. And so I know some of the kids that have it, but my guess is we, we our preliminary data shows there should be 750 kids per year born with this in Alaska. Okay. And we, we're picking up about 100. Wow. And so vastly under- representing the true population that has Arctic, uh-huh. the Arctic variant. And so the kids that I see who have Arctic variant, I don't notice a big difference in obesity versus non-obesity, mm-hmm. but we don't see all the kids because okay. we don't know who, who's got it and who doesn't. Now, you mentioned that your roots are in the lower 48, and the question is, do we have any insight into how many native Alaskan couples find their way into places, whether it's Canada or whether it's the U.S. that may not be screening for this. Do you, have you seen any data on that? So what's great about this is uh, we send all our newborn screenings to Oregon, mm-hmm. um, and that's who does our newborn screening. And they do a, most of the newborn screening across the West Coast. Oh, okay. So if you're an Alaska Native person who lives in Oregon, Idaho, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, those areas, you will be picked up oh, because really? the newborn screening program goes through the same exact program that we go through. Okay. Um, so, but there are people living in Washington, and that's a different newborn screening program, uh-huh. and you may not be picked up there. Really, Washington State is a different program. It is. It goes through their public health lab and at the at the state of Washington. Oh, that is interesting. So we've talked about this problem, metabolizing fats in many of these uh, Native Alaskans. But there's another genetic variant that also has nutritional implications that you're seeing relatively frequently here. Tell us about that. So uh, that's a little bit new. It's called congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency, and it's an absence of the enzyme that allows you to, to metabolize sugar, so basic white table sugar. Okay, so in biochemistry, you've got the PhD. You know, I've only got my, <laughs> my medical training. Anything that ends in ASC is, is generally an enzyme that breaks something down, right? That's correct. So sucrose is table sugar. Right. Sucrase would be an enzyme that breaks down table sugar. That's correct. Okay. And that's what we're talking about. Yep. And so this particular enzyme deficiency, is it an all or none phenomenon where people can't, or do they have some activity like the CPT1A? Do we know? We don't know enough about it yet. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very unique mutation, again, similar to the Arctic variant in the sucrase isomaltase gene. And uh, it's found in the Alaska native population. And uh, when we send, in the old days, it, this is an enzyme that's found in your gut. And okay. that's where it breaks down sugar. Okay. In the old days, as of a year ago, we used to have to do a biopsy. So you'd have to put a tube wow. down the kid's throat and go all the way to the duodenum past the stomach and do a biopsy of the tissue. We now have a blood test looking for this specific mutation. Well, that's an advance for sure. Way better. Yeah. And, and less expensive, much less invasive. Uh-huh. And so we're starting to pick this up more and more because it's a much easier test. And we don't know if there's a little bit of activity. We think there's basically no activity. Wow. So what happens when a child like this eats some sugar? Uh, they have diarrhea, watery diarrhea, not bloody or anything, but watery diarrhea. And how much of how much sugar does it take? Not very much. Um, so if you have a li- what we think is if you have just a little bit of sugar, and, and we've got some kids up here in the Norton Sound region who have this, who are on basically a traditional diet, uh-huh. and if they have just a little bit of sugar, like 
let's say they go to a birthday party and have some cake or something, mm -hmm. they'll have diarrhea for about a day. Really? But if they have, um, if they're on a Western diet, which is very high sugar and uh -huh. they're having sugar every day, they'll have continuous diarrhea. Wow. Now let me ask you this question. Let, let's talk about a food that's very low in sugar, something like Cheerios. I, mean, I think there's one gram of sugar in a serving. Can they safely eat that? They, it depends on the kids. So they're, huh. what's interesting about these kids is some kids have very mild symptoms and some have very severe symptoms. And we don't understand the difference between the two types of kids. Okay. So maybe the, one of the kids could have Cheerios and just have kind of loose stools or mm -hmm. not very many problems. Another kid could have Cheerios and would have very loose diarrhea for, you know, a day. And so we're, we don't know the difference between the two. What we, what I recommend to parents is if a kid has a food, has diarrhea, that should be a food that should be avoided in the, in the future. Wow, if they have this genetic If variant. they have this genetic problem. So you're a pediatrician. You work in a regular pediatric clinic, right, as well as you know, doing these specialized uh, research projects. Uh -huh. So when a child comes in, I mean, if the average pediatrician is listening to the show, a child comes in with diarrhea in Colorado or Florida, they're not likely seeing this problem, right? This is not something they would think about. Okay. Yep. But here, how high on your list of, of options or diagnoses is this possibility? So uh, usually when I see kids with this, um, the the sugar in breast milk and formula is lactose. Mm -hmm. And so the kids do great for six months. And when they change over to more solid foods and they start diversifying their diet, that's where they start having the diarrhea. So if a, if a six-month-old comes in to my clinic and he's had diarrhea for a couple of weeks or a month, um, this is number one on my list. Really? It's that common? Yep. Do we have an idea? I know you're just getting into doing more comprehensive testing, but do we have an idea of what percentage of the population, say here in Nome, might be affected? It could be up to 5 five to 10% really? of the people could have it. And this is another one of these so-called recessive genes. Right. So you have to have both parents giving the gene to the child in order for them to have the condition. That's correct. And, and I think, again, this is related to the traditional diet. Um, if you, in the, in the old days in the Norton Sound region, there was essentially no carbohydrate in the diet. It was all mm -hmm. fat and protein. Mm -hmm. And so if people had this issue, they didn't even know about it because they never, they never took sugar. Okay. And so now that we've switched to a more Western diet, it's becoming a problem similar to the Arctic variant. Uh -huh. Now the Arctic variant with the CPT, the fat metabolizing, as you mentioned, researchers who've looked at this said this gene was especially favored and there must be, so there must be some advantage to it. Right. Whereas with this particular problem, metabolizing sugar, it doesn't seem that it's as prevalent. It, the gene is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people with it, but it's a much smaller percentage of the population, right? We think so. We haven't done quite as strong a research into the congenital sucrase isomaltase issue as we have with the CPT1. So if, as people get more interested in this and you, we see more and more kids with this, somebody will pick up the project and find out the true prevalence of the gene, whether it was selected for, whether it's a random mutation, mm -hmm. um, whether it's related to traditional diet. And we may do all this through the CPT1 project as well oh, okay. because they're so related. Right, right. So at this point, though, from the limited information we have, we're thinking this is perhaps a deleterious variant and it's not obvious that there might be some benefit. That's that's correct. Uh, it may just be a random mutation, and because people weren't eating any sugar, they never saw it until they until the Western diet rolled in. 
Well, there's a lot uh, that's happening here in the in the research lines in uh, in Nome and surrounding regions. You're though based in Anchorage, correct? That's correct. And how often are you up here in Nome? I come up here about um, for a week at a time, about four times a year. Okay, boy, we're sure glad that our schedules coincided that we could get you behind the microphone. Yeah, that worked great. Tell me a little bit more about some of the things that you're seeing in indigenous peoples here in uh, in Alaska. Um, I th- well, so there's there's lots of interesting things that have, that uh, I see up here, and one of the reasons I love the Nome Clinic is because we really do see a lot of uh, interesting di- interesting things and interesting kids. Um, one of the things I see m- more commonly up here than I see would see anywhere else in the U.S. is congenital adrenal hyperplasia, hmm. and what that is is you're missing the enzyme that allows you to make steroid um, in response to stress. Wow! And so kids. Um, uh, their adrenal uh, glands don't work very well. And when they get stressed from illness or, you know, a stressful event, they can't bump up their steroids like other kids do. Hmm. They also can't make just baseline levels of steroids. So these are kids who are on uh, uh, cortisol uh, for the rest of their life once you diagnose this. And this is another thing that we pick up on the newborn screen. Hmm. So we have several kids up here in the gnome area that we follow for, for this particular issue. Um, the, um, there's a large number of kids that have eczema up here because it's such a dry, cold environment. Mm-hmm. And so my eczema treatment skills have gotten much better since I moved oh, to Oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> well, we're going to take some of the lessons that Dr. Hirschfeld has been learning in Nome and try to translate them across cultural lines and across tribal lines to all of you tuning into the show. So you don't want to miss our next segment of American Indian Living, applications of some amazing insights from uh, just below the Arctic Circle here in Alaska. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back with more. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor, because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease and most don't know it? The day I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. I called the National Kidney Foundation, and the young lady who answered stayed on the phone with me and walked me through step by step. She, too, was surviving kidney disease. She showed me there could be life after kidney disease. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. As Native Americans and Alaska Natives, we have the power to prevent diabetes. Science has proven that if we lose as little as 10 pounds by walking briskly for 30 minutes, five days a week, and making healthier food choices, we can prevent diabetes. For more information, talk to your health care provider. For free materials, call the National Diabetes Education Program at 1-800-438-5383 and ask for the power to prevent diabetes. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Corporal John Vale was on patrol when his truck flipped. I realized I can't move my legs. When John arrived at the VA, 
Paralyzed Veterans of America was there to advocate for him and help John with his claim. PVA has helped hundreds of thousands of veterans get the care and benefits they've earned, and their service is free. If you need help with a claim or just navigating the system, contact us at pva.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose and Dr. Matt Hirschfeld in our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. We're speaking about amazing insights from the North Country. We're here in Nome, Alaska at the Norton Sound Medical Center I'm speaking with Dr. Hirschfeld, an MD and a PhD. Dr. Hirschfeld, you uh, have an interesting background. You trained in various places where there's quite a native presence. You did your medical school where? At the University of Utah. Okay, and then went on and did pediatric training where? That was at uh, Seattle Children's University of Washington. Okay, and what about your PhD work? Was that at one of those institutions? That was at Utah. Okay, wow. And uh, I'm sure there are many people curious. You mentioned the biochemistry connection in your Ph.D. for the other health professionals tuning in. What was that biochemical emphasis in? Um, so I was looking at toll-like receptors, which are the receptors for bacterial inflammatory products. Mm. And so we were trying to figure out how bacteria activate the immune system and the inflammatory response in human hosts. Okay, now that is interesting. So we were just speaking about inflammation and one of those hormones that is involved in the inflammatory and stress response, cortisol, made by the adrenal glands. Now, one of the questions that some who may have picked up on some of the key words you mentioned in the last segment. One is congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So congenital means they're born with it, right? Hyperplasia, though, means uh, growth or excessive growth. Right. So why do these kids have large adrenal glands if they're deficient? So they're actually missing an enzyme um, that allows them to convert uh, pre-molecules to steroid. Mm. And because the adrenal gland recognizes that it needs to make steroid but can't, it gets bigger. Okay. And um, it's... but. Despite its size, it still can't make the steroid because it's missing that enzyme. And so presumably some of this is being signaled by the pituitary sending messages like we call ACTH or something. Absolutely. Triggering that growth. Right. Wow. So you see a number of kids with that condition here. Yeah, there's a, there's a, it's not a high population, but relative to the rest of the world, there's a higher number of kids in the Bethel and Norton Sound region that have this issue. Wow, wow. And so Norton Sound, for those geographically who are not that familiar with Alaska, what region are we talking about? So this is the Nome region. Um, Nome is the central regional hub uh, city that's uh, surrounded by a number of villages. And so the Norton Sound region is based in Nome, but it has uh, several villages around it that, that make up the Norton Sound region. Okay. And so you pick this up in this newborn screen, you actually measure cortisol levels, or what are you checking for? Um, you know, I'd have to look that up. I can't okay. remember exactly what you're looking for on the newborn okay. screen. But it flags it. It does. And you know there's a problem. And then these kids have to be taking something like 
prednisone by mouth? What do they end up doing? Yeah, they take hydrocortisone is the medicine they take. So they take hydrocortisone by mouth for the rest of their life because they're not able to uh, make the steroid. And so they need a low level of steroid Mm -hmm. every day. And then if they become sick, you have to... uh, bump it up because when you get sick, you increase your steroid production. Okay. So that's what you do as a pediatrician when one of these kids come in with a pneumonia? Yep. Or fever or diarrhea, anything that causes severe, like severe stress. So surgery is another reason that they would need stress dose steroids. And I do this in conjunction. We actually, we have so many um, great endocrine kids in the Alaska native population. We hired our own pediatric endocrinologist. And so she has this amazing practice where she sees all these really interesting families um, and helps helps run their their medical management. Tremendous. Now, for those who are, are tuning in, they say, well, this sounds somewhat interesting, doesn't sound all that practical. It's extremely practical, at least from my perspective in preventive medicine, because most of us who don't have enzyme deficiencies are probably overdriving our adrenal glands. We're <laughs> subjecting ourselves to excessive stress. Right. We're uh, many of us using lots of caffeine that stimulates right these same kind of hormones. Right. Absolutely. What does it look like as far as kind of, we talk about a basal level or a a normal level for someone to uh, to be supplemented with if they don't have adrenal function? How much hydrocortisone do you give a child? It's it's actually not that not that much, and 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 you, you basic on their weight and their height, and that generates a, a metered squared, and you and you give them a, a baseline based on their on, on their total height and weight. Uh-huh. Um, so it's usually a two to three times a day dosing. We tend to use, especially up here in Alaska, that liquid version of hydrocortisone is not very stable. Uh-huh. And so we tend to give pills to these kids, okay. but we grind them up and put them in breast milk or formula, whatever they're taking to eat. So infants are having to use this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You can't make your steroid from the very beginning. And wow. so these kids will um, uh, need it from, you know, essentially as soon as you diagnose them. And how much percentage do you have to ramp it up if some kid has an illness? Usually we triple it. Triple it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, I mean... When we hear these stories, it just gives us some appreciation, and, and I'm speaking to our listeners, Matt, uh, how amazing the human body is right. and how your own, you, you're not thinking when you're sick that you've got to ramp up your steroid production. Uh, these are not the sex steroids that you sometimes hear about or the anabolic steroids that build muscle. Right. These are these uh, kind of basic building blocks of life that you need to respond to uh, just daily living. And what's even more amazing is in villages with 200 people, we have kids living out there with, with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And if they get weathered out or if it's hard to get a plane out to them and they get sick, you know, parents are taking care of these kids by themselves, sometimes in isolation until you can get a plane in to get them out to them. Wow more advanced medical. So these parents are true heroes out there doing this kind of stuff. And so presumably before we started identifying this problem, I mean, these kids would just die. So what was interesting is um, because the, you can't make this end steroid, um, the oftentimes you get, uh, it shunts through a different pathway and it makes testosterone. And so little boys used to die because they are they were hard to tell that they had this excess testosterone uh-huh. little girls born with this often have ambiguous genitalia wow. because they have so much testosterone in their system because it's being shunted through the wrong pathway uh-huh. their genitalia look a little bit like boys and wow. so in the old days before the newborn screen we'd pick up the girls 
but the boys would get in a lot more trouble because we couldn't diagnose them based on their external features. Wow, that is interesting stuff and very practical, and you're making a big difference here with it. Well, let's translate this into something that many people can uh, relate to. You mentioned some of the challenges you see with the environment here, and that is eczema. Tell us what eczema is and some of the things you've learned about treating it. Sure. Eczema is a, uh, it's it's essentially just like an allergic reaction on your skin. Um, it, it goes along with allergies. It goes along with asthma. It just means you're kind of hyper-responsive to your environment, and it, it manifests as a dry, itchy, scaly skin eruptions. Okay. It can happen anywhere on the body. It's more common in cold climates. So if you move to Costa Rica, it kind of disappears, which okay. is kind of great. Uh-huh. Not very viable for all the Alaska Native people up here. But, right, right. Um, so uh, we see a lot of uh, eczema in the winter time because mm-hmm. it becomes cold and very dry here. And um, so uh, one of the big problems with eczema is it's chronic, and you can't just mm-hmm. treat it for 10 days and have it go away. So parents are again, true heroes who can take care of this and their kids because it's very itchy. It's very distracting to the kid. And so um, basically parents just have to treat it essentially nonstop with lotions, Vaseline, creams. And then you can also use some hydrocortisone or some other steroids to try and control outbreaks. Now, the hydrocortisone is available over the counter. It is. And as physicians, we've always heard these cautions about not putting steroid creams on the face because of how it can skin, uh, thin the skin. Yep. Is that uh, an issue in this population as well? It is. There's a lot of eczema in the face, and so I will use uh, 1% hydrocortisone on kids' face for short periods of time, mm-hmm. so 7 to 10 days, to try okay. and control outbreaks. Because one of the problems with eczema is because it's a scaly breakdown in the skin, you can get super infected. And so if you are in a place where um, there's not a lot of running water, there are some villages in Alaska that don't have running water, it's fairly easy to get a super infected bacterial infection of an eczema outbreak. And so controlling that with hydrocortisone to try and get the skin smooth and Mm -hmm. without the breakdown is more important than, you know, uh, trying to hold off on it. Okay. So when we use that term medically, super infection, that means one infection on top of another. Yeah. It means... Or on top uh, of something else. Essentially, it means that you have an eczema breakdown in your skin and bacteria invade that area and cause a localized infection where the eczema is. Okay. And these pediatric patients that you're seeing here in Nome, presumably they're coming from this whole region. They're being flown in, many of them, if they have a significant problem? Yep. That's correct. Okay. And... um, Tell us uh, some other lessons that would be relevant to people tuning into the show from across the U.S. I I, I just don't, I think, I mean, one of the things that people, so I have a pediatric resident up here with me Uh and she is a, she's from Seattle Children's and it's hard to, to understand the true isolation up here in Nome. Mm. And Nome is, you know, the big city up here, Uh but once you move to the village, trying to understand how common pediatric problems can be a much bigger deal in small Mm -hmm. villages Mm -hmm. where you can't get a plane out for days potentially like right now i think we're weathered out in most of the villages and And so really it's it uh, i can't say enough how great the parents are in the norton sound region bethel all the small villages in alaska to try and take care of these kids and and um, in very small places 
The other great thing about Alaska too is the health aid system, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. which are local people who have been, have received extra training to basically be the frontline medical people. Um, they've, they have a high school education at, at least. They're not medical doctors. They haven't, they're not nurses, mm-hmm. but they function as doctors and nurses out in these small villages. And they are amazing people. I mean, mm-hmm. if you shoot yourself, you go to the health aid. If you have a cold, you go to the health aid. They treat everything out mm-hmm. there. And um, with a good health aid, you can do a lot of stuff in the village. That's amazing. And so really, part of what uh, what this whole experience is talking to me about is just like you're emphasizing, Dr. Hirschfeld, on the front lines of medical care is really the family, yep. the community, the village, the tribe. And because many folks live in areas where they have easy access to medical care, it sometimes seems like, well, it's not that important for me to have that knowledge base. But it doesn't matter where you are. The more knowledgeable you are with medical issues, the bigger difference you can make in your family and your community, right? Absolutely. And and teaching teaching families about the CPT1 Arctic variant, you know, that I think... I can teach families, but the best teachers are local community members. So all the moms who have already had a kid who's been diagnosed with this, teaching new moms who have this, that community connection is really powerful and and much more effective than anything I can do. Now, there are resources out there. Some folks have heard us talking about this. Uh, There is apparently on YouTube some instructional media. Is that right? That's right. Um, When we have a child who's been diagnosed with Arctic variant CPT1 on the newborn screen, uh, we send a 17-minute DVD out to the families. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we first started diagnosing this, we had a a brochure that we'd send to families, and everybody just threw that out, Mm -hmm. as you do with any brochure. Uh Um, But when we started sending the DVDs, uh, we did a small quality uh, assurance project where we looked at, did we get our message across uh-huh. to the families? And universally, the DVD was much better than the oh, pamphlet. Okay. And so so this video is available on YouTube, and you can download it and take a look at it. So if I just went to YouTube and put in CPT1 Arctic, that probably would pull it up? Hopefully, yep. Okay. And then what about the... Uh problem with sugar metabolism this uh, sucrase uh, deficiency so we so you can you can type that into the computer somewhere but actually at ANMC we're in the process of making our own brochure geared towards Alaska native families okay um, so we're trying to we're showing a lot a lot of pictures of Alaska native families and, and that'll be available in the next month okay Alaska Native Medical Center in Anchorage yes. is doing that yep listen we're going to try to keep Dr. Hirschfeld by just for a few more minutes, we've got one more segment coming up. Some uh, especially interesting things I think you don't want to miss. I'm Dr. David DeRose talking with Dr. Matt Hirschfeld. We will be back with more. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1 800 775 HOPE. That's 1 800 775 Four six seven three. We'll be right back after this. What I say, you already know, but you don't believe. You won't accept. You don't conceive. When you're inside your car, you feel safest of all. Are you safe? Are you? Two tons of sheet metal in your hands. Two tons don't run on autopilot. You have a mission. It's no collision. Hold the phone. Don't text. You're angling to be next. Oh, you've done it before. What's the harm? Just this once, there's no alarm. Got your hands on the wheel? No big deal. 
Brothers and sisters, you won't see it coming. You're off the road. Your life explodes. It's not worth it. Don't do it. You only think there's nothing to it. Put it down. Hang up. Pay attention to highway action. Behind the wheel, there is no such thing as a small distraction. Join the conversation at DecideToDrive.org, a public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, who would rather help keep your bones strong than put them back together. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with Dr. Matt Hirschfeld. We've been speaking about some amazing medical insights from Nome and the Norton Sound region up here in northwestern Alaska. Matt, uh, this is a fascinating place, and I've appreciated you carving time out of your busy schedule. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. We didn't talk about one of the other areas that Alaska is really one of the leaders in when it comes to medical delivery. Uh, I did a whole show, actually, on health aids, but one of the things we've never talked about is some of the advances in telemedicine that are being pioneered here in Alaska. First of all, just give us a quick description of what telemedicine is all about. Sure. So there's two types of telemedicine, and one of them we've been doing for almost 12 years here in Alaska, and and what we call that is store and forward. So it's like you take a picture of a rash or an eardrum, and you send that to a specialist. So you take a picture of a kid who's in a village, send that to a specialist, usually in Anchorage, and then they give you an opinion about what you should do next. Mm-hmm. And that's very easy to do. It doesn't take a lot of bandwidth or anything. Um, what Alaska is becoming a much, a, a very forward thinking state about is live video telemedicine. And what's enabled that is there's a local cable company up here called GCI that is dedicated to wiring um, all of the villages with broadband internet. And as that has started to happen, we are able to provide live video clinics to kids and adults or anybody in the village from the specialists in Anchorage. Now, this is staggering to me because just a couple of days ago, I flew in to Nome from Anchorage, and it was actually a fairly clear day. All I could see was wilderness. Yep. How are they hardwiring all these villages and communities that are so spread apart? 
Yeah, so right now we're, we've got a lot of satellite link-ups, but they are trying to do fiber optic from cables that are coming across the Pacific. And so um, they're, essentially their goal is to hardwire all of these villages uh, in the next several years. And once that happens, our possibility of providing in-home clinical visits rather than flying people all the way to Anchorage or all the way to Nome is, is going to be limitless. Wow. So right now... Someone has a problem in a small village. They have a health aid worker, let's say, in that village, and most of them do, right? Right. And so they go to the health aid. Do those health aids currently have access to telemedicine? Almost all of them do. Really? Yep. So if they've got a question, they can, in real time, actually consult with a specialist in either Nome or, or more likely, Anchorage? Uh, oftentimes, the, if you're in a village, they will go to the Nome site. Okay. Um, what we're developing over time is the ability for Anchorage to go directly to the village. I see. And so I have a pilot project that we're working on actually with Norton Sound right now where if they have a sick kid in the village, they can call me or one of my partners, uh-huh. do it on a, on, put the kid on live video, and uh, tap in the provider from Nome as well. So it's a three-way video, wow. village, uh-huh. Anchorage, Nome. And all of us can look at the kid and decide what's the best course of action. Should he come into Nome? Should he mm-hmm. go directly to Anchorage? Can he stay in the village? Wow. All those questions can be answered. That is really tremendous. Yeah. And before, I mean, it wasn't that long ago where the only option was to actually physically fly that child to one of these centers. Yep. And talk to people by telephone, which is not a good indication of how well a kid is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's any of us describe. physicians, when someone calls us on the phone and tries to describe a rash, for example, I mean, that's pretty tough. Yeah, Exactly. So basically telemedicine in Alaska, but then you still have the routine pediatric problems just like anywhere else, right? Right. right. So you've told us when you see a child with diarrhea, your thinking is very different up here in Alaska than what you were trained to think of in Washington State, right? Yep, exactly. Are there different things you have to think about when you see a child with pneumonia? The, the uh, it, there are a few differences. Um, Alaska and Alaska native kids, um, there are a few different bacteria that cause pneumonias, blood infections, meningitis than we see in a lot of the lower 48. Um, in the old days, we had something called Haemophilus influenza type B mm-hmm. or Hib. Mm-hmm. It's one of the vaccines that are given now, and it's basically eliminated the disease from the U.S. Mm. But there's a related uh, bacteria called Haemophilus influenza type A Really, that we see a lot of kids with pneumonia, blood infections, meningitis, and basically that's not seen anywhere else in the U.S. Wow. Any insight as to why that's a problem here? We have no idea, but the CD, we have a CDC Arctic Investigations Unit, and they're looking into uh, why it's so prevalent up here. Should we develop a vaccine mm-hmm. um, for the Alaska native population because it's so common? Um, different questions like that. And I know with the Haemophilus influenza type B, I mean, this is a a serious illness. I mean, I've heard of some cases where even though, like you've mentioned, it's largely been eliminated because of the vaccine, there is a number of pockets in the population that are not vaccinating their kids. And I just read some uh, case report of a physician who saw a child who had this infection. And as I recall, I mean, this child was basically in like a persistent vegetative state from this? What, why would there be such drastic complications from such a infection? 
Um, it's 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 a very in, well for Haemophilus type B. It's a very invasive bacteria. And actually, the first time I ever saw it, I was working on the Navajo reservation, mm. and a ten year old kid came in with who had never been vaccinated. So it isn't eliminated from the from the population. But that kid did. It's it's a very invasive bug, and it goes directly to. Uh, it's common to go to meningitis, which is an infection of the lining of the brain. Uh-huh. And when it does that, it's it can be very devastating to children. Wow. I mean, to me, the great irony is there's all these, and maybe you want to weigh in on this. I know it's a controversial topic today, getting a lot more press. But a lot of parents are worried about brain injury to their children from vaccines. I hear this discussion more and more, and even uh, I'm not a pediatrician, but it, it comes my way as well. And then you see these devastating illnesses, whether it's measles, whether it's haemophilus influenza type B, with serious brain complications because a parent didn't vaccinate. How, how do you process all this as a pediatrician? I'm a big proponent of vaccines. Um, I've I've seen I'm the the problem with vaccines is they work too well, and so no one knows the bad things that happen. Like in the old days when polio first came out, right. everybody knew somebody who had polio, so right. people lined up down the street to get the polio mm-hmm. vaccine. The vaccines are so effective that people have lost that ability to know people who have had pertussis or who have had diphtheria or polio. And so uh, it's become less common to give them. But um, if you don't get your kid vaccinated, I believe you're putting your kid at risk because these diseases still do exist in the population. Now, speaking of vaccines, we're in Nome. We have to talk about diphtheria. Why do people make that connection between Nome and diphtheria? So also interesting, the Iditarod starts relatively soon. So uh, there was a diphtheria outbreak in Nome, and uh, the first Iditarod was that the weather was too bad to get a, a plane or a boat to Nome. Mm. And so the only way to get it was dog sled from Anchorage. And so a dog sled team left Anchorage with diphtheria serum on board to treat all the children who were coming down with diphtheria in the Norton Sound region. Wow. And and how serious is diphtheria? Diphtheria is very serious if you get it. Um, all those diseases, diphtheria, pertussis, pertussis kills a number of very young babies every year because what it does is it stops their breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, and all those diseases can be very serious, especially in the very young. And those you don't vaccinate kids against those until they're two months old. It, um, and so if if the surrounding family members, the surrounding friends and family don't have complete vaccines, uh, they can give those diseases to kids that haven't been vaccinated. And wow. the young kids can get in a lot of trouble with them. Wow, that is, uh, that is amazing. So basically diphtheria and pertussis are now covered in a single vaccine that includes the tetanus vaccine. Is That's that typically correct. how it's done? Yep. And it's important for adults to keep up with that. Is that true? Absolutely. Adults and older kids. In Alaska, we're great for the first year of life. Um, Everybody gets their vaccines. And then as kids stop getting sick as much, they stop coming to the doctor. Mm -hmm. And you start getting delayed on your vaccine. So it's really important to stay on the correct vaccine schedule. And adults need updates on those on a regular basis as well. So theoretically, a teenage child who hasn't kept up with his diphtheria vaccine could get diphtheria and pass it on to it or pertussis or pertussis yeah really yep now is there a reason why someone living in a arctic or subarctic region would be more likely to get diphtheria does it thrive in cold weather do we know anything like that so we don't as far as i know there's not any increased risk for getting that in cold weather uh anytime you have overcrowding though um and there's a lot of uh village areas that have lots of people living in one structure mm-hmm. and uh it's really easy to pass 
diseases back and forth. RSV is the classic that we see up here, mm. which is a flu-like illness, and uh, overcrowding really causes kids to get that commonly. Really? Wow. And that's a vaccine-preventable illness or not? It's not, but we're working on it. Okay, wow. Dr. Hirschfeld, you've given us a lot to think about. Any final points of contact if people have other questions? No, they're always welcome to call me at Alaska Native Medical Center if anybody has any questions, and I assume my contact information will be part of this. We'll do that. If you're listening today to American Indian Living, we'll have Dr. Hirschfeld's contact information in our cue sheet that goes out to all our affiliates. Listen, we're so glad, Matt, that you joined us on today's edition of American Indian Living. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you to each one of you who've tuned in today. Dr. Matt Hirschfeld with the Alaska Native Medical Center in Anchorage. We've been visiting together in Nome, Alaska at the Norton Sound Medical Center. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you, as always, the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service.